2 Corinthians 11. This morning we'll look at verses 16 to 33, the second half of the chapter. For those of you who are visiting, we're studying through this book. Almost done here. 2 Corinthians 11. You know, it's not just what you say, it's how you say it. When talking about communication between people, I'm always startled to be reminded again how much of our communication is not just the content of our words, but it's the tone of our voice and our body language. How we say things is an immensely important part of what it is we communicate. And to some extent, that's even true in written communication. It's not just the facts we write down. It's the way we present the facts. So this morning, as we consider this piece of Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, a kind of a strange passage, a difficult passage, I want us to think, first of all, uh, about the way that he answers them, the way that he writes to them, and then look at the content of what he actually writes. Maybe see as we go through it. Let me read it first. Beginning with verse 16, 2 Corinthians 11, verse 16. I repeat, let no one take me for a fool. But if you do, then receive me just as you would a fool, so that I may do a little boasting. In this self-confident boasting, I'm not talking as the Lord would, but as a fool. Since many are boasting in the way the world does, I too will boast. You can gladly put up with fools, since you are so wise. In fact, you even put up with anyone who enslaves you, or exploits you, or takes advantage of you, or pushes himself forward, or slaps you in the face. To my shame, I admit we were too weak for that. What anyone else dares to boast about, I'm speaking as a fool, I dare to boast about. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm out of my mind to be talking like this. I am more. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the forty lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen. In danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false brothers. I've labored and toiled and often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? If I must boast. I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus, who is to be praised forever, knows that I'm not lying. In Damascus, the governor, King Aretas, had the city of Damascus guarded in order to arrest me. But I was lowered in a basket from a window in the wall and slipped through his hands. As I mentioned a minute ago, we're going to boil this down to two lessons, and we get the first lesson from 
the way Paul responds to this church. And then our second lesson comes from what he actually says in response. So the first truth is this. Not everything deserves answer. Not everything deserves an answer. What do you do? How do you respond when someone says outrageous things, makes outrageous claims, makes outrageous accusations? How do you respond? That's the difficult issue that the Apostle Paul faces in his relationship with the church at Corinth. His opponents there have accused him of the most outrageous things, this Apostle of Christ. He has no credentials to be an apostle, they've said. He's no good as a preacher, they've said. He doesn't care about you people here, they've said. He lied to you when he changed his plans, didn't come, like he said. He's a weakling, they've said. He's a fool, they've said. And some people in Corinth are believing those outrageous charges against Christ's apostle. So what should he do? How should he respond? Well, the book of Proverbs, which Paul knew well, obviously, has some helpful down-to-earth guidance about such things. In Proverbs chapter 26, 4, and don't, don't worry, we're not getting completely away from 2 Corinthians here. Proverbs 26, 4, we read, Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you'll be like him yourself. That's good advice. Sometimes you just don't answer foolishness at all. For if you do, you're going to look like a fool yourself. It's a lot like that saying someone passed on to me recently. One of you said, don't wrestle with the pig. You get all filthy and the pig loves it. Don't wrestle with a fool. He loves it and you look like a fool. Kind of what Proverbs is saying. Everything does not deserve an answer, in other words. In fact, in Titus 3.10, the Spirit makes this into a command. Warn a divisive person once, warn him a second time, and after that, don't have anything to do with him. Everything doesn't deserve an answer. There's times to be quiet. Do not respond to foolishness. Ah, but Proverbs 26 doesn't end with verse 4. It goes on, and then listen to the very next verse, verse 5. It says, verse 4 says, don't answer a fool according to his father. Verse 5 says, answer a fool according to his folly, or he will be wise in his own eyes. Sometimes you don't answer. Sometimes you do answer. But if you answer, Proverbs says, you risk sounding like a fool yourself. If you don't answer, the fool thinks he's wise, thinks there isn't any answer. If you do answer, you sound like a fool. That's a dilemma, isn't it? That's the dilemma Paul faced. He didn't want to stoop to the level of his foolish accusers. But then again, the church was suffering under these fools. How could he just stand by and let this church be destroyed? That's his dilemma. And so in our text this morning, Paul begins to answer the foolishness in Corinth. But what makes this text difficult to sort through and kind of strange is that his response is not some carefully crafted theological argument like we read in the book of Romans, the book of Galatians, the book of Colossians. Instead, his response to Corinth is along the lines of that instruction in Proverbs. He answers the fools according to their folly. He answers foolishness with foolishness. 
So this whole section is commonly called Paul's fool's speech. As he answers the fool's accusations on their own terms. For not everything deserves an answer and not everything deserves a serious answer. Now Paul pursues this foolishness by the use of two devices which are quite foreign to him. The first is he takes their accusation against him as his own identity. They have called him a fool. He says, okay, I'm a fool. For the sake of argument, I'm a fool. Now, Paul didn't really think for one moment that he was a fool. He knew he was an apostle of Christ. But they had stopped listening to him as an apostle in favor of listening to these outrageous fools. So he says, if you're only willing to listen to fools, then let me be a fool. Then you'll have to listen to me. Here we see why Paul was willing to stoop to such humiliating nonsense. We see it in verse 20. He says, you gladly put up with fools since you are so wise. In fact, you even put up with anyone who enslaves you or exploits you or takes advantage of you or pushes himself forward and or slaps you in the face. This church was being abused and destroyed as a result of their tolerant attitude. They were willing to put up with anything, it seemed. They even tolerated these, what Paul told us last week, servants of Satan when they came quoting Bible verses to them. So though these false apostles didn't even deserve an answer, Paul was willing to play the fool, to use the church's inordinate tolerance for fools to get a hearing if perhaps he might rescue this church from its error, rescue this church from the imposters who misled it and abused it. The other device that Paul uses here in his argument, something which the false teachers used a lot but which was so foreign to Paul, and that was this matter of boasting. These teachers never tired of boasting, of flaunting their worthiness. They boasted of their letters of commendation which they brought with them, suggesting Paul was not qualified. Where are your letters of commendation? They boasted of their authority as leaders. They demanded from from the common folks in the church at uh, Corinth and, and, and called Paul a fool and unworthy because he wasn't demanding. And with elegant oratory, they boasted of their preaching skills, noting that Paul was utterly unimpressive in his speaking. These false teachers were experts in marketing themselves to the church at the expense of Paul's legitimate ministry as an apostle. This was a difficult issue for Paul, for boasting, which they certainly did, but boasting is absolutely opposed to everything in the Christian life. Boasting takes God's glory and shines it on myself. Boasting acts as if my salvation is my doing, not God's doing. Boasting, by its very very, uh, uh, definition, seeks to promote self rather than to promote Christ. This style of ministry, and we see a lot of it, it's shameful. Some things just ought not be. They, They don't even deserve an answer. Boasting is one of those. But Paul is concerned for this church. It's being led away from Christ. 
And so, hardly able to get the words out of his mouth, he says, okay, you want to boast? I can boast too. You want to compare credentials? I have credentials. You think you're the servants of Christ? He says, I can't believe I'm talking this way. I am too. Paul can't stand to talk this way. It's foreign to everything he believes. Again and again, he, he says things like, I'm not talking like the Lord would. I'm speaking like a fool to dare to boast like this. I'm out of my mind to speak like this, he says. But for the sake of the church, Paul engages these false teachers on their own turf. He temporarily accepts their methods, not as a way to do his ministry, but as a way to show the folly of their ministry. Not everything deserves an answer. But Paul answers the fools according to their folly that the truth might shine forth. Folks, we still face situations like Paul encountered from time to time, and it's often hard to know how to proceed. But sometimes we just need to not answer when people talk foolishness. But then sometimes the stakes may be so high that it's worth making a fool of ourselves, even using our opponent's devices for the sake of Christ's church. May God give us wisdom to know how to respond uh, to all that the world throws our way. Remember that not everything deserves an answer. Well, enough about the way that Paul uh, responded. Now let's get to the content of his response, which is the main point of this, the main theme of this passage, and that's our second point. Meekness commends true servants of Christ. Meekness commends true servants of Christ. I use the word meekness, though I'm very aware, aware as we read our text that the text repeatedly uses the word weakness. We always want to distinguish that meekness does not mean weakness. We see weakness a lot here. You can see it in many places. Verse 21, I was too weak for that. Verse 29, I feel weak among other things. Verse 30, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. Clearly, Paul is talking about his weakness. I use the word meekness, however. For we're not talking about weakness of character or moral weakness or weakness of resolve. We're talking about weakness in the sense of our frailty and our limitations and our insufficiency. Weakness is what Paul and we feel. Meekness is what it looks like when we continue to be faithful even in the face of our weakness. Jesus says, blessed are the meek, but the meek who are blessed are those like Paul who profoundly know their weakness. And it is this meekness in weakness which commends the true servants of Christ. So although Paul takes up their technique of boasting, he quickly throws them a curve, as we'll see in a minute. For while they boast of their power and their authority and their gifts, their image, Paul chooses to boast of his weakness. For he knows that that meekness commends true servants of Christ. I'm getting ahead of myself. He starts off in his boasting sounding like he's going to compete with these false teachers. He starts boasting 
about his credentials. Look at verse 22 in the beginning of 23. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. Apparently these false teachers were claiming some connection to the Jewish church, perhaps to the 12 apostles in Jerusalem. With a sense that a Jewish ancestry gave you more credibility in the church. And so then they questioned Paul's ancestry. For Paul, remember, grew up not in Jerusalem, but in the Greek of Tarsus. Ah, but such an accusation did not hold water, for Paul did not grow up Greek. He grew up Jewish. In fact, his mother tongue was not Greek. It was, as so many Jews scattered around the world, uh, around the empire spoke, but he grew up speaking the ancient Hebrew or Aramaic of, uh, uh, of his people. He, you see, he was not just a racial Jew. He was devout in practicing the faith. Circumcised on the eighth day, according to the covenant stipulations, a true son of Abraham. But Paul knew that these were the very things that had kept him from Christ for so long. These were the things that he trusted in. So long I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I'm a true son of Abraham. I'm a keeper of the law. Those are the boasts that fueled his self-righteousness and caused him to hate Christ. Those are the boasts that he had to come to see were garbage that he might trust Jesus instead. So when Paul gets to the point here, when he starts boasting about his credentials, I'm a Hebrew, I'm an Israelite, I'm a son of Abraham, when he gets to, I'm a servant of Christ, it's like he can't do it anymore. He can't continue that kind of boasting boasting of the credentials that these false teachers prized. Instead, beginning with verse 23, Paul takes his boasting in a completely different direction than they went. And he begins to boast in his weakness, knowing that that's what commends true servants of Christ. Suddenly, Paul boasts of the things which marked his apostleship, not the great victories, but the great defeats. Not the things which made him look good, but the things that showed how really weak he was. So in verses 23 to 26, he rehearses his suffering as Christ's servant. He's been in prison. He's been flogged. He's been exposed to death. Five times he received the 39 lashes. That's Jewish punishment. The book of Deuteronomy, the Old Testament law, uh, put a maximum of 40 lashes on how anybody could be flogged, so they carefully would only do 39 lest somebody miscount and they violate the law. Three times I was beaten with rods. That's Roman punishment. That kind of punishment was never to be executed upon a Roman citizen, which Paul was, but then again, justice was often scarce, and Paul had endured Roman floggings as well as Jewish floggings. Because of his constant travel for the sake of the gospel, he faced those dangers. Three times he says, I was shipwrecked. Spent a day and a night in the sea. By the way, this is, this is written before the shipwreck incident we read in the book of Acts, so we know there are at least four times he was shipwrecked. He experienced the dangers of natural forces, rivers that he had to cross, oceans that he had to cross, the raging elements of all kinds. He, exper he experienced the vulnerability to crime, which would, was common for ancient travelers. Dangers from bandits, Dangers in strange cities, 
dangers all alone out in the remote countryside. He, he faced the prospect of harm, particularly directed toward Christian evangelists, dangers from Jewish zealots, like he himself had been, who wanted to hunt down Christians and kill them, dangers from Gentile antagonists, dangers from imposters claiming to be Christians. Paul was well aware of how vulnerable he was. But he boasted in that weakness in which he served the Lord. But it wasn't just outside forces that showed his weakness. He was also plagued by personal struggles. He tells of them in verse 27 to 29. Paul's ministry was hard work. He labored. He toiled in the ministry. Paul didn't live in a day of telephones and cell phones and computers and air travel personal automobiles. No, communication was hard and travel was hard and it's time consuming and it was dangerous. Plus, Paul was mostly working another job to support himself all day. Making tents in Corinth. In order to serve Christ faithfully, he did without many things. He went without sleep. You work all day and you have to teach tomorrow. When are you going to prepare? You're going to do without some sleep? He went without food. If you're an itinerant tent maker, you probably don't have a big business. and You don't probably have all the bills paid. Don't have what you need. Sometimes went without the basic comforts of warm clothes, he said. Oh, but the greatest personal burden that he speaks of, that he boasts of, was the burden of pastoral responsibility. Look in verse 28 and 29. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? Here was a minister who felt the weight of the responsibility that Hebrews 13 talks about when it speaks of leaders who must obey, must obey because they keep watch over you as men who must give an account. Well, Paul was no detached theologian. He had a pastor's heart. The problems of the churches ate at his soul. Watching people he loved get caught in Satan's snare caused him to burn inside. But as every pastor knows, you can't change those things. Sometimes the ministry is hard and you're weak. Sometimes the rewards are few and you feel vulnerable. Sometimes people make bad choices and you are absolutely powerless to stop them. Sometimes things blow up in your face and you're helpless to do anything about it. But rather than complaining, Paul boasted of his weakness, which he felt so keenly. That's what he says in verse 30. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. And folks, that meekness in weakness is what commended him as a true servant of Christ. So why did Paul do this? Why did he boast in his weakness? You know, he could have recounted his great successes. He had many great successes rather than focusing on his defeats and his weaknesses, on experiences where his plans came to nothing and his helplessness where it was exposed. So why did he boast of his weakness? 
I believe it's because Paul wanted to show us that the bottom line is his only strength, his only worthy resource, his only hope for success, the only thing he had worth glorying in was the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul said he only wanted to know Christ and to be like him. That's what he says in Philippians 3. Whatever is to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his suffering. So if you want to know Christ, what is Christ like? Well, Isaiah 53 says he's a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering. In John 12, Jesus says his greatest glory was going to the cross. No wonder Paul boasts in the things that show him to be weak in his suffering, in his trouble, for that's where he's most like Jesus. That's where Christ's glory can be seen working in him. The marks of a true apostle were the marks of Christ. Suffering. As he says in Galatians, God forbid that I should boast. Except in the cross of Christ Jesus, my Lord. Paul's meekness in weakness commends him as a true servant of Christ. For it makes him look like Jesus. Folks, in our day there's even more confusion than there was in the day of Corinth concerning the ministry. All kinds of people claim to be ministers of Christ. And with a variety of tactics, they capture the attention and the allegiance of God's people. Some are demanding tyrants, cult-like leaders who lord it over God's people. Some are slick marketers telling people what they want to hear. Some point to their great successful ministries and who can argue with success? Some brandish their many academic credentials. They're the experts that no one dare question. So how are the people of God going to know? How could we possibly discern the, the genuine from the imposter? The very thing we talked about last week. Well, here the apostle gives us some help. He throws out some questions. You want to know who's true? Well, who labors as a servant? of Christ, no matter what the cost. Who is willing to suffer for his identification with the Savior? Who selflessly loves and gives himself away for the sake of the church? Who's willing to play the fool if necessary that the people of God might be made strong? Who is willing to go to the cross with Jesus for the sake of broken people? You see, it's still the same. Meekness and weakness marks the true servants of Christ. That should mark us. This should be what we desire, what we would boast of. Not how great we are. Not how self-sufficient we are. Not how successful we are. 
but that we know Christ and are being conformed to Christ, which deals with our utter weakness, for we need grace. Well, Paul closes this section, and I will close, with one little incident from early in his life, right at the end of this chapter. At first, it seems tacked on as you read this. You say, now, why did he throw that in? It doesn't seem to fit. But I believe it's Paul's masterful conclusion to this uh, discussion. Talked about this incident in Damascus. We read it in uh, verse 32 and 33. This is actually recorded in Acts chapter 9. This incident where in order to escape arrest, Paul was lowered in a basket from a window in the wall around Damascus. Paul here, I think, is giving us a stark contrast between the false teachers and the true servants of Christ. Let me review the history for you a little bit. Acts chapter 9 opens with Paul headed for Damascus on a mission. Paul was popular. Paul had letters of authority. He was breathing out hatred toward those with whom he disagreed, those who believed in Jesus. And he came with all the trappings of of authority and of power. He was on a mission. But on the way to Damascus, he encountered, and this is recorded in Acts 9, he he encountered Jesus and was forever changed. He was baptized by a man named Ananias, and he immediately began to proclaim the gospel in that town where he had come to search out the Christians. He began to tell people about Christ. He tried to persuade everyone how Jesus is the Son of God, and the one who once hated Christ is now proclaiming Christ, and predictably the opposition arose very quickly. And so, even before we get to the end of chapter 9, Paul has become the enemy who must be seized and destroyed But the disciples of Christ, wanting to save his life, unceremoniously crammed him into this big basket and lowered him down out of a window down the wall that he might get away. So this is what the great scholar, the great theologian, the powerful activist, the the righteous Pharisee, this is what he's come to. This humiliating scene, testimony to Paul's vulnerability, Is this what knowing Christ has brought him to? Like a sack of potatoes in a basket. (laughs) I think Paul wants us to draw the the, the contrast. Here's two people. The beginning of Acts, the end of Acts. Who's the true servant of Christ? Is it Paul then known as Saul of Tarsus? riding toward Damascus with all the pomp and the power and the letters of authority and a heart full of self-righteous anger. Is that the servant of God? He thought he was. Or is the true servant of Christ this fearful, weak little man in a basket at the end of the rope, dangling out the back window in the wall, sneaking out of town to save his life? Which is the true servant? Which one looks more like Jesus? The persecutor of the brethren? Or the persecuted one? Paul says, I glory in that humiliation. I boast of the weakness I share with my Savior.
for meekness in our weakness is what commends us as true servants of Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we're so caught up in the world's models of things that we have trouble thinking the way Paul thought. We love our credentials and we love our boasts and we love our successes. And we hate to expose our weakness. But Lord, you knew, you know, and the apostle tells us that we're kidding ourselves. That our only hope is in the admission of our terrible weakness. For there we find the grace of Christ. There as we pick, take up the cross, we identified with our Savior and that's our strength, that's our success, and that's our glory. Well, so Lord, we want to be strong in the truth and we want to be strong in walking with you and we want to be strong in integrity, but help us to not uh, try to throw up some facade of self-sufficiency self-worth but help us Lord to be meek faithful ones living with our weaknesses but faithfully pursuing knowing you and serving you and being like you in Jesus name we pray Amen